The Landlord and Lawyer Podcast with Ben Beadle and Tessa Shepherdson. Hello, everybody, and welcome. He's Ben Beadle. He's the landlord. And she's Tessa Shepherdson. She's the lawyer. And together we are the Landlord and Lawyer Podcast. We are. And this week, we've got a great episode for you. We are going to be talking to housing barrister and deputy district judge Robert Brown. Yeah, it should make for an interesting discussion, I think, Tessa. Um, Robert's obviously got a lot of uh, in-court experience and housing uh, experience with it. And I think, um, especially given the topic of conversation of late around courts and possession and and everything going on, um, I think it's one that landlords will be interested in. Yes. Yes, so let's uh, let's move ahead and um, hear what he had to say. Okay, everybody. Well, we're very pleased to have with us today um, Robert Brown, who is a housing barrister at Selborne Chambers. Is it not, Robert? And you're also a deputy district jobs. Uh, <laughs> But you're also a deputy district judge. So perhaps if you could just talk a bit about the work that you do, um, just to give us a bit of background. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Tessa. Yes. So as you say, I'm uh, my my main day job as a barrister, Selborne Chambers in London, although I have uh, been down to London uh, probably fewer than 10 times in the last year for reasons that I'm sure you could all imagine. Mm. And I've been working in practice as a barrister uh, for just over 10 years now. Before I was at Selborne Chambers, I was at Arden Chambers, which was a uh, exclusively, almost exclusively housing set. Selborne Chambers did property and other commercial work, and I do uh, housing work there. And that involves the whole uh, range of things I think really that you might deal with under housing law and um, I have also been appointed a couple of years ago as a deputy district judge which is a part-time judge sitting in the county court filling in some of the gaps that there are and in the course of that one would ordinarily do a lot of housing work actually as it happens over the last year um, not all that much housing work sitting as a judge because so much of it was subject to the stay following or stays plural following COVID-19 pandemic coming in but do the whole range of things uh, across that the uh, the diet of the district judge in the county court it's one of the broadest jurisdictions you can possibly find every type of case that you can um, you can think of I mean it, district judges do even have the jurisdiction to imprison people so we think about that being primarily associated with the criminal courts and indeed it is but the county courts do have a residual bit limited jurisdiction to imprison people so it's a very broad very interesting range and I think it's quite useful actually to do both because um, get to as a judge see all the things that people do that are really annoying and then try very hard not to do them when you're on the other side of the bench so um, what are the main changes that you've seen? I mean, we've had this massive upheaval with the, the, the COVID pandemic, which has upturned everything. What, what has been the main problems that you've seen with that and the changes in the courts, both as a barrister and, and as a deputy district judge? Well, the main, um, two main changes really. One first was that housing possession cases basically stopped 
for around six months. There were a few exceptions of things that kept going, but pretty much everything stopped and is now only slowly restarting. The other was um, the speed with which the approach that there used to be to hearings changed. Uh, in, um, in practice, up until March 2020, the default position I had for any hearing was I would need to go and catch the train, catch the bus, get in the car, whatever it was, drive to court, train to court, and go in to a building where I would sit in a waiting room, sometimes meeting the client for the first time, and then you would uh, go into judges' chambers or a courtroom and deal with it there. The um, I would say that in about 10 years of practice, and I haven't checked my records, but I would say I've probably done 10 telephone hearings in about 10 years of practice. Everything else was going to court and dealing with it that way. Suddenly, a lot of the objections, problems, hurdles that there had been in the way of these sorts of things uh, were no longer as significant as they had been prior to January, February last year, because there was suddenly a massive different factor to weigh into the balance, which was the infection risk. Um, and so, whereas previously, I don't think I've ever done a telephone hearing in practice where you had a litigant in person on the other side. I mean, the, the rule was effectively that there had to be solicitors on all sides to set these things up. And uh, video hearings, I haven't done one at all. Uh, they were very limited because of the way the technology was employed and all the rest of it. All of these things suddenly started doing telephone and video hearings for a, a lot of things. And that had to be done. It really had to be done. It, the only other alternative would have been not to shut down not just housing law, but all aspects of law for at least six months uh, and possibly longer. And that's just unworkable. How do you think it's worked, Robert? It's a mix. And I, I think um, for some things, it has actually worked very well. And I think going forward, there are things where actually some form of remote hearing should be the norm, should be the default. And we shouldn't just go back to thinking everything needs to be attended. But there are cases where the technology just doesn't work. And I, you could say, all right, that's true. But if you've got to travel to court, there are cases where the uh, train service doesn't work sometimes. Oh, I've had that. Hearings that should have been going ahead don't go ahead because uh, someone's found that the train line is flooded or whatever. All of these kinds of things can happen. Uh, and the, the other thing that you find, and it is interesting, these remote hearings being opened up to litigants in person, and I think that's, that's right, but it is difficult sometimes for people to appreciate this is still a court hearing. Might be a court hearing where you're in your front room, your opponent's in their front room. Hey, sometimes even the judge is in their front room because they're not doing all of these from court. Some of them are being done with judges working from home. And it depends on the participants and it can depend a lot on the nature of the case. Um, family law disputes, and uh, sitting, I do, I have limited um, array of family cases that come before me. They mainly go to other judges. But, but family law disputes, I think, um, particularly where there aren't lawyers involved, it's very difficult to get people to focus and understand that this is not a forum for shouting across one another. 
I guess you lose the formality of the court, don't you? And the, the respect, or not respect is maybe not quite the right word, but there's something about going into a courtroom and thinking, oh, crikey. I think I think formality is definitely the right word. And actually, I think Ben respect probably isn't that far off being the right word. Um, there is a, a certain sense of propriety and what the the right way of conducting things is. That just that that formality, that structure, that sense that you are somewhere significant mm -hmm. can have. And I, look. We can look at this from various levels because there are studies I know about the effect on people of going to court and actually people who aren't particularly used to it. Um, it can be quite intimidating depending on the location, depending on the judge. And you know, one of the things you're always trying to get at is finding the best way for people to give their best evidence. Yep. Um, one of the things years ago you used to read in lots of the cases was judging uh, uh, a witness's credibility by their demeanor. And a lot of research has been done into that and how it's unreliable for a, for a number of reasons. And one of the reasons is that some of that can be very um, culture-oriented, that what uh, someone from one background might think presents as a truthful demeanor may be very different for someone from a, a different background and so on. But the other thing is that uh, demeanor will obviously be affected by how nervous someone feels about uh, how things are going on. And it's all very well saying, look, if you're telling the truth, you haven't got anything to hide and someone who is telling the truth um, isn't going to be nervous. But we know that's not how people react to all sorts of things. You're bound to feel nervous even when you're telling the truth. Look, I'm sure if the police barged in now and took me away to question me about something and I knew I'd done nothing wrong, I'd still be nervous about being questioned by the police because what might I inadvertently say? I might accidentally say I've done that. Under pressure. Yeah, Under pressure. quite. Yeah, quite. So... Um, it, there are a lot of different factors that need to be put into this in order to work out what is the, the best way. But I, I've got to say, I mean, really what you, it's a, it's a difficult judgment call about where do you put the burden of waiting and logistics? As, um, I know Tessa, uh, gladly gave up going to court and dealing with those things a long time ago and she whenever she says that uh, she always says it with a huge grin on her face um but 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 tessa will know that a lot of the litigators experience of going to court is the inside of waiting rooms you spend hours in waiting mm. rooms yeah yeah, you, you you get a lot of time chatting to um to to your client and also to other litigation solicitors who are also stuck in the waiting room. Uh, absolutely, yeah, and you get to uh, recognise a few faces from the local circuit, and you bump into people. Quite quite nice on occasion, but there's a lot of just sitting around because th this is how the system has to work. There are only so many courtrooms, there are only so many judges, and there's a lot to get through. I mean, it's all, almost like booking planes. Um, all, all the main carriers overbook flights on the basis that not everyone turns up and it's better than um, that not everyone turns up and they still at full capacity because you don't want to fly empty or, or, or even shorter full capacity and it's the same you don't want a judge sitting around kicking their heels with nothing to do they're paid a reasonable salary they're public servants and are a scarce resource so the system sort of makes puts the burden on the parties to wait around once you start doing the remote hearings, some of that changes a bit because obviously the parties, to cut out the travel time, 
And uh, it always used to be on the rare occasions where you did get a telephone hearing as a practitioner. That was great because the telephone hearing was a fixed time. It was set up as a telephone conferencing system. And you knew that the people who were at court were going to have to wait for you because if your hearing was booked in for 10.30, that's the point when the phones would be ringing and you, you get to deal with it. Whereas ordinarily, if you go to court for 10.30, you know, you might be on at 10.30, it might be 12.30, it might be the afternoon. Well, um, certainly in the county courts, what you found is there just aren't the systems, there just aren't the resources for setting all of these things up any other way than the poor old judge sitting there dialing out telephone numbers. And it's so time consuming, so time consuming, particularly when people don't answer the first time, which often happens. And even people do answer the first time. If you ever have one of these hearings, you, you pick up the phone and you've got to press this number for this and that number for that. And it's really easy actually for people to just accidentally disconnect themselves. So it's fine if you are just dealing with two, um, two lawyers and they know what they're doing. But by the time you've dialed in the barrister, the solicitor, the client and their two witnesses on one side and then the same on the other side, you've had to dial all these numbers several times. Uh, it's taken 15 minutes of the hearing. Robert, I was going to ask you, actually, because um, of, you know, obviously there's been a lot of focus on the way hearings are conducted uh, and social distancing and remote hearings and that sort of thing. One of the comments before COVID was that, um, particularly in possession cases, is that people weren't really engaging in the process and typically tenants, I, I guess, you wouldn't necessarily turn up um, to their to their final hearing. Is there any evidence that you've seen that by having, you know, a, a more informal way of, of dealing with it, particularly the review hearings, which is another topic, that it brings people a bit more into the fold and more engaged in the process? Or is that not the case? I think I mean, I don't know if the evidence is being gathered in any formal way. I suspect it, it might be. So all I can go on is a little bit of it, personal experience and anecdotal experience from others for what that's worth. And I think there are types of hearings and possession lists are, are, are one of them. Uh, also, um, injunction hearings, return dates on um, antisocial behaviour injunctions and indeed non-molestation applications, where um, when they would be listed in court for an attended hearing, the attendance rate from respondents, defendants was low. And I think that has telephone hearings, my, my experience on a limited sample size is that the attendance rate is higher. Now, that from a perspective of ensuring people involved in those cases get the best justice is really good. From the perspective of ensuring that the justice system keeps working for everyone, it causes problems. Because again, when time uh, when listings are done and times are done, it's on the assumption that if you list 10 of these particular type of cases, five of them, no one's going to turn up. Three of them are going to be agreed and only two of them are going to be contested and need to be dealt with in that way. Once you start allowing people to deal with it by phone, um, it goes instead of five not turning up, you're down to two not turning up and suddenly the whole hope you know there's a significant number of additional cases that are contested and need directions to trial and that time needs to be found and so on so it's great that um, people are being more engaged in the system 
but the system isn't used to dealing with those types can't. of engaged numbers. Yeah. yeah. If if everybody decided I am going to turn up to my EasyJet, my Ryanair flight, <laughs> EasyJet and Ryanair have got a huge problem. What right. about the question of um, um, sort of duty solicitors and, and support? Because one, one of the things that many courts had, would they have duty solicitors at court to help tenants when they turned up and could even represent them at hearings? How's that being dealt with? So that, that um, they basically uh, are doing it by phone for people who are not attending in person. And I suspect it varies in different areas. I've got to say it works on the days that I've done. It works reasonably well. What it relies on, of course, is the quality of the duty solicitor. Um, um, uh, fortunately, most of them are, are really very good. They need to be. It's a very difficult job. You've got a limited amount of time, perhaps a little more in current circumstances because cases aren't listed at quite the same volume as they were in the pre-COVID times, but very little time to try and effectively take a full case history from someone and work out what's relevant, what's not relevant uh, and progress it. But um, I think it's, Again, it's another thing that without that, the system just wouldn't work because they are able to sort of sort the wheat from the chaff and able to focus things in a way that when a duty solicitor says, right, there's this point and there's this point, you know, well, they might not be right. They're serious points rather than trying to find out from someone who doesn't understand the law, who will uh, bombard you with a plethora of points, most of which may be really important to them, but from a perspective of law, bad points. But buried in there, there might actually be the good point, which is the defence. And it's quite difficult to work that through. So the duty system, I think, is invaluable. In that someone is doing that sort of filtering exercise to a, to a degree uh, in order to say, right, the, you know, out of all of this bundle of information, this and this are the two key things that you need to, to worry about. And Robert, tell me, um obviously the review hearing has been brought in as a response to to covid to kind of manage the the flow i guess if you if you will uh, any evidence from your perspective as to the effectiveness of of that yeah i appreciate it can bring advice earlier into the process which has to be a good thing but any view on how those review hearings work or don't work and you know, do you see them being there for the longer term well the um it is meant, I think, to be time limited. Whether it's going to be taken up or not, I, I don't know. It, certainly from practice, I can say that it doesn't really seem to do a tremendous amount other than add an extra level of delay in. The courts that I think it is working and that things are being achieved are those where I think I get the impression that they're actually not following the overall arrangements document mm -hmm. to the letter, but are doing a little bit more active case management with the review hearing. Yeah. Because otherwise, if you do, unless you do that, all you've got is a situation at the end of the day, have the parties agreed something? Well, if not, then does it look like it's all in order? If it does, you list it for a hearing. If it doesn't, then it doesn't get listed. And sometimes that's because 
documents have been filed but aren't on the court file yeah which is again just another layer of delay the the ones where it seems to do something are where there is actually a bit more of an active case management duty solicitor gets involved and they come in and speak to just i've spoken to um so and so i've spoken to the other side and we're agreed that there isn't a defense but that um we're going to ask you to allow uh, ask the court to allow a period of 28 days rather than 14 days just to allow a bit more time and that that's a case done and dealt yeah. with in a yeah. way that's sensible for all the parties but it's very variable from court to court isn't it as far as i can see um obviously yeah. the overall arrangement document will be updated um uh for the 31st of uh, of of may um as we start to see you know measures uh, lift of as as has been announced but i think my my gut on this is telling me that the review hearing is is one way of of slowing things down a little bit more than anything else yeah i i don't want to um uh, you know well, I, I look at it this way if you had a possession day list back in february 2020 you would probably and again listing practice varied but you you would probably see somewhere something like 10 or 12 cases being listed per hour for a morning or even a day and you look at the um, draft title the suggested listings timetable there is in the overall arrangements and I, th I think it's looking at 10 or 12 cases substantive cases for a day and all right, you've then got the review hearings after that, but they're not hearings in the traditional sense that anyone understands. And say, absent some agreement, nothing is going to get uh, resolved. And to a certain extent, if you are the defendant who doesn't want to be evicted, there's little incentive to agree anything at the review hearing stage. So if you think about that, the capacity, the, the throughput capacity is just so greatly reduced that there needs to be some way of managing this. And I think that the review hearing stage is a way of trying to manage that throughput or the, the volume that needs to come through in a way that tries to ensure that everyone gets their, uh, their fair go at a fair time. I, I don't think anyone would suggest it's the ideal perfect system, but yeah. then no one would have su suggested that a global pandemic was the... <laughs> Yeah, ideal quite. perfect thing to have happened and there have had to be a whole whole range of responsive reactive measures some of which uh, across society have worked better than others um, but one of the others from a court perspective robert is the role that mediation can play in 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 proceedings you know between substantive hearings i guess have you had any experience of that well i certainly from a practitioner's side i have and um mediation can be I think it can be very useful and there are very very few cases where I would say it, it has no prospects whatsoever and even then I think it's it's worth considering there is the mediation pilot that feeds in with the overall arrangements but um, I think it's little, little early on in the system to say whether or not that is being effective. Um, mediation is always dependent on the willingness of the, the parties to be involved. And what we've actually had, not, not in this mediation pilot as such, but for some years, the Court of Appeal particularly have been moving towards um, sort of moving more from a, a, a carrot approach with mediation of, of 
offering incentives in terms of the litigation structure for to it to I think more of the the stick where I suspect we are going to move to a position where a, a failure to enter into mediation is going to be recognized in the cost consequences even if you end up winning yeah and do you, do you think i mean as a as a judge would it be yeah there's obviously mediation schemes that exist um already you know if a, a landlord and tenant had been through mediation and reached agreement or not reached agreement is that a helpful precursor do you think to any court process would you be cognizant of it as a uh you know a, a judge well, I think one of the things actually that you have to have about mediation is that parties have to be free to speak freely. Mm. And so you do certainly with most mediation um, sort of structures and systems that I, I've dealt with, there needs to be some confidentiality element to it. And so uh, if that mediation hasn't led to anything, then the most that you might know as a judge is that mediation has been attempted, but you won't know why it didn't work. I mean, one thing that often happens, I think, with litigants in person is they will blurt out something that was said at the mediation or seek to rely on it. Of course, some, the, the confidentiality point of it is that you're able to speak freely and openly and uh, put forward a position by way of compromise but only to the point that there is an agreement. If there's no agreement, then you can you retreat to your battle lines, effectively. Um, I mean, it's interesting that there was actually, uh, there was a report done last year, the year before, looking at housing disputes and how they can be resolved. And one of the models that was being put forward was um, a dispute resolution system that would try to keep some things out of courts. But there you straight away then had the housing law practitioners association who, who were critical of some aspects of that proposal uh, and there are arguments for and against pros and cons I mean, one thing I it depends what what the case is about i mean if a tenant can't afford to pay the rent i mean there's not much you can mediate about really you know either they pay the rent or they don't well i, I think that's right i mean I, I think some things are almost relatively binary. I mean, when you're talking about commercial disputes and it's about a sum of money, it's always possible with uh, goodwill to bridge the gap and find a figure at which both parties are willing to, to accept. Uh, one might think that they could have got away with paying a bit less and the other might think that they could have got away with achieving a bit more, but it's a commercial settlement. You take all these risks on. But th there are some things where th there's just no halfway house you either stay in the property or you don't mm. it's not like that there that any compromise position that you can do with that I mean, okay sometimes what what is wanted actually is a bit more time and you can do that you can manage those sorts of things sometimes what's wanted is a bit of assistance with moving and those sorts of things can be dealt with and i think the other thing tessa is particularly with housing law and I would say this as a as a housing barrister, and perhaps people would say it about other areas, but it is very technical and actually fast-moving law in terms of its development. I think um, housing law is a bit like the, the myth of, about a shark, that if it stays still, it will die. Uh, you know, sharks stop swimming, they die. I'm not sure it's true. But certainly housing law seems to uh, have adopted 
that as its uh, as its core creed or something that housing law must be constantly updated and evolving can never stay still at any and one preferably point. on a friday afternoon preferably before a bank a holiday friday. yeah exactly <laughs> preferably on a friday afternoon before bank holiday uh, indeed thus uh, invalidating all the notices that people exactly. put in the post before they left for the day <laughs> hurrah uh, but i i do think actually if you are someone who is trained as a mediator i suspect mediators say that the particular skill they have is mediating disputes and they don't need to be experts in a technical area uh, technical area and in some cases that might be true if you've got lawyers on both sides and they can explain their positions to the respective law but i think if you're talking about as invariably will be the case situations where one or possibly both parties are going to be unrepresented if you're going to mediate that fairly i think you do need to have a solid background in the technicalities of that area Otherwise, you're at risk of facilitating and mediating a settlement. It's just, well, it might be one that the parties are willing to accept, but it might be just plain wrong. Uh, and that's what worries me. Which, in fairness, this um, housing dispute resolution model that was put forward a while ago, I think part of the idea was could be people who had experience and expertise in mediation and in this specific area of law, uh, rather than just being... And I don't mean to use just pejoratively. I know it's a very difficult uh, skill, but but just being mediators more more generally. So you've got to say, when I have used um, in practice mediators, I think that it really helps in a property dispute to have a mediator who knows property law. Mm. I mean, mediation can bring very good results, um, but it, it, as I said, it depends on the type of case. Um, well, I, I think that's right. And I, and I think in practice, um, you're constantly surprised at the, the cases where uh, you've gone into mediation uh, with goodwill, but thinking there's no way this is going to settle. And it does. And those cases where you think this, 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 there's no way this should be going to trial. This is obviously going to settle. At the end of the day, they hate each other more than they started out hating each other. But, um, the one of the most recent oh, sorry most recent mediations i did i was a we, we went in with really good intent but at the back of my mind was this isn't going to work it was a three-party mediation and from the position statements everyone was way way off but uh, we had a good mediator really good mediator and we had the bare bones of a deal before lunch and the finer points of it were bashed out and we were finished mid-afternoon excellent yeah i i, I think yeah. one of those ones uh, a good result for um everyone in there <laughs> everyone i think will have gone away thinking might have done better than that at trial could have done a lot worse indeed yeah, and that's a line underneath it Robert, I was just going to ask, um, just conscious of time now, but th yeah, we've obviously seen a lot of changes in the court system uh, over the past few years. What, yeah, what sort of impact when we get through COVID, conscious we're not through it yet, um, uh, uh, you know, what does the court service look in, in, in the next 10 years time? Uh, yeah, what, can we, what can we expect to see? Where are the areas of focus, do you think? Well, I think it's certainly... Um an area where funding is persistently said to be an issue and 
you can get different figures from different sources. And I think back in 2010, was being suggested in some quarters that some departments of the MOJ would be looking at 40% funding cuts, others 25%. I think the sort of general view, and of course, all of these things depend on are you looking at real costs, uprated inflationary costs, and you can always spin a picture however you want, depending on the figures. But the, the Bar Council put something together last year, and I think they worked on the basis of it being about a 24% real terms decrease in the 10 years since uh, 2010 and of course that has effect you had the then lord chief justice giving evidence to a committee about three years ago talking about morale amongst staff and judiciary and how it was very low and the effect of um, dilapidated court buildings i think dilapidated was the the word that he used and these are problems in terms of how the service is able to deliver things going forward because Let's be under no illusions. There were delays in the system in January 2020, February 2020. I think I don't deal with criminal law, but I think the delays in some areas of criminal law perhaps worse than they were in some areas of civil law. But there still were delays in civil law. And of course, inevitable then with the effects of COVID that delays are going to have been increased. And... Um, <laughs> It's necessary, obviously, one understands this, for government to fund other things as we come out of COVID and, and the recovery programme. But there was already a backlog. That backlog has going to have got bigger. And the courts have challenges to meet in terms of going forward in, in order to be able to, um, well, even begin to start catching up rather than just letting this backlog get bigger again you go back to possession cases at the moment it's difficult to see how the backlog is going to do anything other than get bigger because the throughput is so significantly reduced how long would you estimate that somebody issuing proceedings now for a standard possession how long do you think it's likely to take them to to work it through the system well i mean if it depends if you get your order on the first hearing or not um, as you um, will know, Tess, as Ben will know, the rules used to provide that the first hearing would be between four and eight weeks of the claim being issued. And if you got your uh, case dealt with then, got your possession order for a private sector landlord, you'd normally be looking at a possession order for 14 days. After 14 days, you can ask the bailiffs, depending in different parts of the country but you could get a, a warrant executed within a few weeks in, in most places. The um, eight weeks upper limit, which was actually adhered to pretty well in most places, I think, but the eight weeks upper limit has been temporarily uh, lifted. There is now no upper limit. You um, And your first hearing is going to be the review hearing rather than a substantive hearing. So it doesn't take much of a leap of imagination to look at the fact that you, you may not be getting a substantive hearing in court for four, five months after issue. And then that, um, again, if that's disputed, as was always the way, but if it's disputed, you're going to need directions, trial, all the rest of it. Um, uh, and these things are going to take a, a lot longer. I, I would uh, have thought in most areas, if it's disputed, um, you are 
going to be fortunate, I would have thought, to get a trial and resolution within a calendar year from issue. What a cheery note to end on. <laughs> yes. I suppose, I was just been thinking while you've been talking, Robert, I suppose the COVID era, as it were, has it's been like a, a massive forced experiment with the courts. The courts have been forced to use these new procedures, which they haven't really used much before. Do you think long term it will result in a, in a change? Or do you think after this period is over, we will go back almost entirely to what it was like before? I think that there is no going back to um, exactly the way it was before. I think remote hearings in some form are going to be on the agenda far more than they were before. I don't think that they're going to be using them. I, I, my best guess is, is that in a year, we will not be conducting remote hearings in the same volumes as now. There will be far more going to court and attending. But I also think that it will be a far greater volume of remote hearings than it was um, a year, well, May last year, but sort of a year and a half ago. I think that there is much more acceptance of them and they have been shown to work very well for some things. What the system is getting hopefully better at is identifying the things and types of cases that it works well for and those that it doesn't. And I've got to say that... Um, Behind the scenes, there, there are people who've done a lot of work and done very well to set up almost from a standing start this cloud video platform to uh, bring it in as a, a solution, a technology solution, um, often works well. There are problems in terms of the way people approach it, you know, and just odd little things like you have uh, someone who will say, well, I've got the document here. And of course, if you're in court, you say, fine, show it to so-and-so, you show it to so-and-so and everyone have a look. It doesn't work when you're in five different counties or something and um, things like that. Witnesses who don't have witness bundles, because in court you'd have one witness bundle in the witness box and everyone would come up and take their turn and read from it. But witnesses who are uh, sat at home miles from the solicitor and they, they don't have their witness statement, they don't have their witness bundle. And all of these things need to be worked out as to what cases are suitable for it. But... Yeah, I, I feel fairly confident that there will still be telephone hearings and there will still be video hearings in a year's time in far greater numbers than there were pre, pre the pandemic. And I think most people would accept that if you can find a good balance, that is a silver lining. So there may be some, some development from the, from the trauma. It yeah. may be entirely wasted time. Yeah, as you say, sort of forced into it. It's a forced response, but um, could be a good forward move. Okay. Well, I think probably our, our time has come to an end. So um, that was that was that was very interesting. It's interesting, Ben, isn't it, to sort of see it from the inside? Fascinating. Yeah, really, really interesting, Robert. And I think. Um, uh, I didn't... Uh, you know, we're uh, att I'm attending the Master of the Roles working group tomorrow where we're looking at the overall um, arrangements. It'll be interesting to see what what changes are made um, post 31st of May, because I think there will be a new a new overall arrangements document for everybody to work from. Yeah, well, I think that, as you say, um, it's going to be interesting. We have a lot more interesting times ahead of us with gradual easings of restrictions and mm. trying to um, 
get to whatever the the normal is going to be which is going to think i think be a mix of where we were before and where we are now and i'll be really interested in ben to really interested ben to see what does come out of that and how the overall arrangements document changes and evolves yeah. as we get into the next stage with the fictions now being on um, on the horizon in a way that they haven't been previously for some time and how the how courts how uh, bailiffs are going to be able to respond to that so i think you'll have an interesting session with that i've got to say i look forward to finding out what happens with that but thank you very much it's been interesting um, talking about these things with you both appreciate it robert thanks very much thank you robert Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Ben, that was a very interesting talk, wasn't it? Really interesting, Tessa. It's, uh, it's, it's, I find it, you know, being on the outside really quite uh, comforting to, you know, know what's going on on the inside. And, you know, Robert's obviously got the same sorts of concerns about, you know, the practicalities that a lot of landlords and renters have, actually. I think it's also interesting that we've had, it's like we've had this big experiment with COVID um, when the courts have been forced to, to, to develop new practices and it's, it's been a real opportunity for them to test them out. So it'd be quite interesting to see what new procedures come out at, at the end of the tunnel, as it were, and, um, and how the courts progress after that. I agree. I absolutely agree, Tessa. I think you know the, the one thing I would kind of say is that it's interesting to get his take on remote hearings and video hearings. Um, you know, clearly, I think the issue for me is that with a backlog, uh, you know, you're gonna you know, people expect you to have hear their case, and you know, if courts aren't able to fit people in and and so forth, then. They need to invest in the technology to make sure that you know judges aren't sat there dialing lots of you know silly numbers and stuff like that and i think the other thing i would say is it's reinforced my view about the r uh, number as being you know a totally deliberate ploy to try and uh, slow things down because as robert said there doesn't seem to be much happening with those r r hearings it's just delaying the inevitable really yeah oh well well, I hope you all enjoyed our talk um, and um, we will be back again, hopefully next month with uh, another speaker and another topic. So uh, it just remains for me to say thank you very much indeed to our guest today, Robert Brown. And for me to say that um, here's Ben Beadle, here's the landlord. And she's Tessa Shepperson. She's the lawyer. See you soon, folks. See you soon.